Okay, well, let's uh, go ahead and get started today with uh, the doctrine of inspiration. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for granting us the opportunity to be here. Father, thank you for this beautiful day and thank you for your spirit that guides us and teaches us. And I pray that you would do that now, that we might understand and know what it is you would teach us in Christ's name. Amen. Um, last week, Dan talked about the issue of revelation, revelation being that which God has revealed to us. And if you remember going way back to uh, the Doctrine of God class that we did early this year, the reason God has to reveal himself is because God is outside the box, right? Inside the box of creation is us, time, space, matter, angels, humanity, everything that is created. And before that box was created, the only thing that existed was God. And therefore, for God to reveal himself, he has to take the initiative. There's no way that one of us or any being inside the boundaries of creation will understand God outside of creation unless God reveals himself to us. All right? And we talked about last week also this concept of general and special revelation. General revelation is available to anybody. Anybody can look up in the night sky and anybody can see that there is a creator. Even the most hardened physicists are coming around the concept that there's an intelligent design in this universe. They don't like that, but they're compelled to come to that conclusion because there's just too much complexity out there. As you look up in the sky, you can see that there is a great God, a God of order. You can also understand a little bit about God. God's a God of beauty because we see beauty in the world, right? God created you with color sight. You don't see in black and white, you see in colors. I think all of us have stood out on a night and enjoyed a beautiful sunset or the fall colors of the, of the season. Um, so we know that there's a great God out there, but that doesn't tell you who he is, does it? It doesn't tell you what he wants. It doesn't tell you anything about his personality. It tells you about his power and his order and things like that, but not about his personality. And that's why God has revealed himself in his word. God took the initiative to step into time and to reveal himself. And in Hebrews chapter 1, let's, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1 really quick. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. If you all have your Bibles, let's turn there. This is very uh, important. It's right after the book of Philemon. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So how did God speak originally to mankind? Who did he use? Prophets. And who's a prophet? Anybody who was appointed to tell the people what God said. A prophet represented God to people, right? Mm-hmm. A priest represented people to God. All right. So a prophet represented God to people. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he created the world. How did God fully and finally reveal himself? Through his son. son. Alright. Now before Christ came we knew a lot about God because God had revealed himself. And this is, this is really important to understand. God has to take the initiative. See, that's what Dan was talking about last week. Whenever you use your pea brain to try and figure out God, you're going to come up with the wrong answers. You're going to wind up like one of these philosophers who's all balled up. Because you can't understand God on your own. God has to take the initiative. And God has taken the initiative in his word. He has revealed himself in his word. He tells us what he is like. He tells us what he wants. He tells us his will for our lives. He tells us our purpose and meaning for existence. All of those things are found in the Word of God. You're not going to find that those answers anywhere else other than this book. So it's very important that we understand the Bible is the Word of God. Now the question then becomes, okay, if God has revealed himself, how did he reveal himself? And that's what we're going to talk about today, this doctrine of inspiration. Talk about inspiration. And there are two major verses that deal with this concept of inspiration, and here they are. 2 Timothy 3.16.17 All scripture is given by inspiration of God. 
Anybody want to try the Greek word for inspiration? No, not inspire. That sounds like a new car or something like that. Oh, Dell. Blech. All right. It wasn't made by Apple, so I don't know what it is. Um, no, inspiration is the Greek word theonoustos. What do you think theo means? God. God. And noustos. Breathe. God breathed. God breathed it out. Okay? Theonoustos. God breathed it out. And what is, this, uh, what is this word good for? Well, it says several things here. Number one, for doctrine. It tells you what we ought to believe. It tells you what truth is and what truth isn't. It tells you information. It gives us facts about God, facts about His will, His desire for us. That's doctrine. Reproof tells us where we've gone wrong. Reproof says, here's what I wanted you to do and here's what you are doing. You're not doing what you should be doing. Correction says how to fix that. Okay, you've, you've messed up. Here's how you get back on the proper path. And then, of course, instruction in righteousness tells you how to stay on the path. Remember our little diagram with the little circle where you're going along and you swirl around and you come back out. It's probably in your notes. And what it says here, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What do you think perfect here means? Complete. Complete. It doesn't mean you're perfect in the sense of not making an error, right? That's kind of... Is anybody here perfect in that sense? I love the little what little sign with a cat said, Once I thought I was wrong, but I was mistaken. No, none of us in here are perfect. We all make mistakes. In spite of our best efforts, we follow up. So it's not talking about perfection in the moral sense of never making a mistake, never sinning, anything like that. But the Greek word behind perfect means mature, right? Of full age. Maturity. It says that the man of God may be spiritually mature. He might understand spiritual things. Might understand what God desires and what God wants is to do that. Thoroughly furnished on the all good works. Now, one of the things we're going to talk about probably in a, in a later session in this course is the sufficiency of Scripture. There are a lot of people that believe that God, this is the Word of God. They believe that God breathed this, but they don't believe that God told us everything we need to know. Well, there's a problem with that, right? What if God left some stuff out that helps you be mature? How do you, how do you reconcile it with this verse? You can never become complete. You can never become mature. You know, there are people that say, you know, God didn't like really deal with the, with the deep psychological problems of our age. So we need psychology to help us out. Now, maybe psychology can give you some insights and behavior, but you know what? Psychology can't fix you. Psychology can't tell you why you do what you do. Because psychology has all the wrong starting points. Psychology says you're basically good. Okay, you made a mistake now and then, but basically you're good. When you talk about original sin to a psychologist, he thinks you're uneducated. You're nuts. Oh, you got to bring religion in. That's the problem. It's sort of like in the uh, presidential election where people were actually thought Palin was crazy because she believed God created the world. They thought she was nuts. That's, that's the way the world is. Folks, the Bible is sufficient. It, it, it has everything you need to be mature spiritually. It's not missing anything. God did not leave pieces out to be discovered later on by our own ingenuity. Just think about that. You have a warped mind, right? You have a mind that's given over to sin. We talked about the noetic effect of sin. What is that? Remember our term on that? Noetic? Remember what that means? Noetic has to do with mind. The noetic effect of sin. Oh, I have to... Right. She gets the smiley face. It distorts it. The noetic effect of sin means that your mind is distorted morally by sin so that you cannot understand spiritual truth. Your mind cannot figure it out on its own because you are sinful. Sin has corrupted your thinking process. Look at Oprah Winfrey. It doesn't take long. You know, she's not an evil person if you want to say evil being evil. She has a mind that's given over to sin. Of course, what's she going to think? What do you expect? 
still believes in God, though. Still believes in God, but you know, you, you come off all the wrong conclusions because you're on your own. And this is the thing to understand: on your own, your mind is incapable of understanding spiritual truth apart from a work of the Holy Spirit. You can't get it. You are going to come up with the wrong answers. You're going to get the wrong conclusions every time. You can't do it on your own. God has to reveal himself. He takes the initiative. And he has given us a book of his words that tells us what we need to believe and how to believe and what is important. And it's his Holy Spirit that takes that book and makes it real to us when we read it and understand it. And this is where you're going to find truth. You're not going to find it anywhere else. And if something else is true, it's only because they accidentally stumbled over it. It's not because they came up with it on their own. Alright? You put a hundred, you put a hundred of the most brilliant minds of our day in a room and tell them to figure out who God is and they're going to come up with a hundred different answers. All of them wrong. Because you can't do it on your own. What about says knowledge is incomplete? Pardon? Knowledge is incomplete. Yeah, it's... Your own knowledge. Your own knowledge. You, 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 you don't have all the experience. You don't have all the knowledge there is. You're corrupted with your sin. Your, your mind is unable to think as it should be. As it should think. And only God can do that. But God has given us. It's, it's, all scripture is breathed out by God. And the breathing out empowers it to do these things. That's the important thing to understand here. What makes the Bible different than any other book is the Bible is God breathed. And because of it, it has the stamp of God on it. And when we study it and read it and know what it says, it, it changes our lives because it is God-breathed. It is God-empowered. There's something different about this book. And then Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 is the second major concept in this idea of inspiration. It says, prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. What does that mean? It means that Moses did not sit down and say, I'm going to write a book about God. I'm going to write a story about how God created the world. He didn't do that. It didn't come by his own will. It's not that these guys sat down and said, we're going to write a religious book. Paul did not sit down to write Romans and say, I'm going to write a, a treatise on sanctification so that people can read it 2,000 years from now. It didn't come by his own will. It wasn't because Paul decided to sit down and write. It's because it says here, holy men of God spake as they were moved along. By the Holy Ghost. What does it mean to be moved along? It's a fascinating word. And what it means is to be borne along. Some of, you, some of your translations have borne along. And the word was used in secular Greek to refer to the effect of wind filling the sails of a boat. Or if you have a sailboat out on the ocean and the wind fills the sails, what does it do? It pushes that boat along. And what it's saying is that the Holy Spirit, in essence, filled the sails of the authors of Scripture so that they were borne along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. Now, that's a very important concept to understand. They were born along. So let's take Paul, for example. Paul is in Rome. He's in prison. He's going to write a letter to Timothy. We call it Second Timothy. You have it in your Bible. But when Paul wrote that, did he have any concept that he was writing Scripture? He was writing a letter to a friend. That's what it was. It was a letter to a friend. It was from his own heart. It was uh, his own passion that was in that letter. But behind the scenes, what was God the Holy Spirit doing? Inspiring. Bearing him along. So when Paul finished that book, the product of that book was not only a letter from Paul to a friend. There's also the scripture. Both of those were there. All right, you understand what's going on here? That's an amazing thing. Really, think about it. The Holy Spirit was moving Paul's heart, moving Paul's mind, um, moving the words that actually flowed from his pens, from his own heart. It was from the heart of Paul. But it was the Holy Spirit superintending it, blowing it along, moving him along to write that down. Paul didn't know it. Now, let's ask a question. Are there some times in Scripture where they knew they were writing Scripture? Sure there was. Right? 
Sure. Um, John on the Isle of Patmos was told to write some things. So he sort of had an idea that he was writing down something very important. And there are other places in Scripture where God directly tells someone to write things down. Jeremiah being one of them. Jeremiah was told to write things down in a book. So there are, there are examples of that. But by and large, the men who wrote the Scripture did not sit down to write Scripture. They sat down to write in Luke's case, he wanted to write a history. So he wrote Luke-Acts. Paul wanted to write a letter to friends or a letter to a church. So he wrote that. They did not know they were writing scripture. Would it be fair to say that the historical narrative books were where writers were aware that they were... Probably not. Not aware of the Holy Spirit, but aware of writing scripture, making recordings? They were, they were recording history. They did not know it was scripture. Because, and the reason we know that is because if you look back in the Old Testament, there's a lot of books that are, that are mentioned there that we don't have. All right, We have the Chronicles. You know, Chronicles is the Chronicles of the Kings. But there's other Chronicles that it mentions that are not written down. Nathan the prophet wrote a bunch of stuff down that we don't have. So not everything written down in the Scripture, but some of it was. All right, We're going to talk about canonization later, so don't worry about that. We'll, we'll figure out... Do we have the right stuff and do we have all of it? We'll, we'll discuss that in a later class. But right now, the thing to understand is when these men of God wrote down Scripture, they were not consciously thinking in their mind, I am writing something that somebody's going to be reading 2,000 years from now. Paul would never believe that. If you were to get in a time machine and go back and tell Paul when he's writing First Timothy, you know, I've read that book 30 times. Paul would say, get out of here. You didn't read this letter, my friend. What are you doing? What do you mean you're going to read it? He had no concept of that. Yeah, Steve. Alan, do you think when he was writing a letter to a whole church that he had some idea that might find a wider use than just that church? Yeah, he did. I mean, we know that when he wrote the letter to Colossians, right, he said he wanted that letter read in the church of Ephesus. And then he wrote a letter to the Laodiceans that's mentioned in Colossians, which is probably our Ephesians. Um, but he, there are circular letters. Uh, Book of Revelation was one of those, right, where it went around. So they were circular letters, but they did not necessarily know they were Scripture. There's a difference. All right, he wrote a letter to a church, but he did not know that that would be Scripture. There's probably a lot of letters Paul wrote that we don't have. By the way, do you know that your first and second Corinthians is actually third and fourth Corinthians? Paul wrote four letters to Corinthians. We have letters two and four. We don't have letters one and three. What's the difference? Well, one and three were not scripture. Two and four are. Yeah. What made them different? Well, God born along the heart of Paul when he wrote two and four, that it had a stamp of divine approval on it that one and three did not. And this is very important. See, one of the problems when we talk about inspiration, we talk about theories of inspiration here in a minute. Some people say, well, inspiration means that uh, God just dictated a letter to Paul. No, he didn't. You see Paul's heart. You see his passion. When you read these letters, you see the heart of Paul, the passion of Paul being poured into these letters. This is from his heart. And by the way, the Greek that Paul wrote was different than the Greek that John wrote, which was different than the Greek that Luke wrote. And if you were to take Greek and learn Greek on your own, you could read Luke and say, well, Luke uses a different vocabulary style than Paul does. And John is totally different than the, both of those guys. So the Holy, when we're saying the Holy Spirit bore them along, we're not saying the Holy Spirit overrode their own natural vocabulary, their own natural passions, their own natural, natural heart. He didn't override that. He just bore it along. He moved it along so that what was produced from them was not only their words, their heart, but also the mind of God. When we go through an experience in our own lives, sometimes that could be something that could be used for in the future, and there's no clue that we would really know that. And we have a speaking. Yeah, and the only difference being is that, you know, does, well, here's a good question. Does God inspire Scripture today? No, it's done. It's done. Now, that does not mean that God does not illuminate you, right? right. And that does not mean that God does not move you. And, and move your heart at times to do certain things. We're not talking about that. We're talking about Scripture here. That's one of the problems in the charismatic 
movement, a lot of them think that God's still talking and revealing himself. Well, we should be writing this stuff down. This is scripture. If God is still speaking, we need written down what, what is being said. And that's a whole other argument. Is the canon complete? We're going to talk about that. Do we have a complete canon or is it still open? He would argue that it's, it's open in the extent that the magisterium can alter it or add to it or tell you what it really said. <laughs> That's the other big thing. All right. The point here, though, when we talk about inspiration, we're talking about God moving the hearts and minds of the men who wrote Scripture so that what they wrote was not only from their own heart, their own experience, their own life situation, but was also the Word of God. Now, let's ask a one implication, we're going to dig into this a little later here. If that is true, then what would be the character of the book that they wrote, or the letter they wrote? What would be a character, one of the characteristics of it, do you think? Huh? It would agree with the rest of the Bible. Alright, there's no contradictions. What else? Yeah. If God wrote it, what kind of writing would it be? And? And? We talk about the verbal plenary inspiration. We talk about the Bible being inerrant. Inerrant. What do we mean by inerrant? Without error. Of any kind. Period. Alright? No errors. No historical errors. No geographical errors. No scientific errors, no spiritual errors, no errors of any kind. Why is that? Because it's the product of God, the Holy Spirit. If you're saying that the Bible is, has errors in it, then you have a real problem with inspiration. Because that means God inspired Paul to write something down, and when Paul was writing it down, he added some errors to it, and God just sort of let them slip by. He didn't say anything about them. By definition, can God tell you something that's not true? No, he cannot. Right. But, but there are some people that say that. There's some, because it goes back to what is inspiration. But one of the things that, that, you know, for a doctrinal statement, if you want to ever find out, what do people believe about the, whole, the Bible? What, what is it? You talk about verbal, plenary, inspiration. What does plenary mean, that word? We use it a lot. I mean, people say, what do you believe? I believe in the verbal, plenary, inspiration of Scripture. Well, what does that mean? Uh, I don't know. It's in our doctrinal statement at church. I'm told that's what I'm supposed to believe. Well, when we have a plenary session somewhere, what is that? Huh? Everybody shows up. Right? So plenary means all. Plenary means all. While you're explaining words, you should have explained magisterium, too. Oh, that's a Greek. Yeah, it's Greek. That's a Catholic concept of the church fathers, the, the officials of the church who dictate what the Bible says. And in Catholicism, the magisterium are telling the Catholic people what the Bible really says. They don't figure it out on their own. The church tells you what it means. That's the magisterium. The Catholic councils. Yeah, the, the councils of the church. The, the um, College of Cardinals, the Pope. That's the magisterium. But plenary here means all of it. All of Scripture. There's no parts of it that are not inspired. And here's the other thing. There's no one part of Scripture that's more inspired than another part. They're all equally inspired. Okay? Now, even the begats and chronicles are inspired. People say, I give up when I read through the Bible and I get to those, but those are inspired as well. The verbal means what? We think verbal means? To speak. Speak, the very words. So not only is all of Scripture inspired, but the very words of Scripture are inspired. The very word that Paul used, the very phrase that Paul used, when he put down a word in his letter, that was the exact word that the Holy Spirit wanted him to use. Now, did it come from Paul's heart and mind? Sure it did. But, but it was also moved along, borne along by the Holy Spirit, so that what Paul wrote was word for word what God wanted written. 
couple of things. Uh, I understand what you're saying because you're talking about the original language, mm -hmm. the Greek, the Hebrew. We're going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, uh, and, and since we're going to talk about it, certain problems may come in certain translations thereof, mm -hmm. but the original language was no error. Second right. thing I wanted to say, um, people who are just determined to find fault with scripture will say, no, it's not always scientifically correct, but what they're not factoring into that equation is uh, hyperbole, metaphor, mm -hmm. as opposed to when it's said to be fact, you know, when it's written as fact, yeah. then it's fact, otherwise it might not, it, it's a metaphor. Yeah. Like the four corners of the earth, well, we know that earth doesn't have corners, but I mean, you know. Mm -hmm. we just, and that's when we get in the biblical interpretation, that's something very important to understand. The Bible is written from a human perspective, so when it says the sunrise, we know what that means. Right. The same thing when meteorologist says it's going to, the sun is going to rise tomorrow at 6.40. We don't call him unscientific and call for his resignation because he silly thinks that the sun goes around the earth. We know what he means. The same thing from the scriptural perspective. But the Bible, as we looked at a week before last, does have some scientific fact. And we would expect it to be accurate scientifically because who wrote it? The Creator. I think he understands his creation. All right? I think he knows what it means. It's just like when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gave their witness and wrote their, their uh, script that, uh, you know, they're not word for word exactly the same. No. They have different perspectives from seeing a particular occurrence. But when you put them all together, you get a fuller picture of what they're saying, but they don't contradict one another. There's no contradiction. They. We say marbles are very large. Mm-hmm. What scripture am I referring to? We talk about verbal plenary. We go back to this Second Timothy, all scripture. And, 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 then we, and, and then we go from there saying, okay, if God wrote the scripture, did God write this Bible? Yes, okay. He bore along the writers, the individual authors, but the product was his book. So by definition, if God is true, right, God cannot lie, then by definition, the very words that were put down there were the words that God wanted put down. Yeah, but when it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, he could have said all scripture is dictated by God. He could have, but that's not what inspiration means. No, but when you give every exact word, yeah. No. That's what's difficult. That's the difficult concept. You got to think about it. You, you got to think here a little bit. When I say verbal, we think, okay, God told Paul, okay, write this word, then write that word, then write that word. It's sort of like a dictaphone or something like that. He had a pipeline to God as he was writing, and God said, oh, you misspelled the word. Let's go back and no, that's not. That's not what we mean by that. Mm -hmm. Stephen? No, God, God, God knew what would happen. God ordained the the events. Okay. But see, this this is one of the things here. We got we got to you got to be a little schizo on this. All right, because you can't go and say, well, the, the the Bible is just the 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 product of Paul's emotional feeling at the time for Timothy. It was, but it was also God moving his heart, his emotions, his mind, his will, so that what Paul wrote was not only from his heart, it was also from the mind of God. That's, that's what we mean by verbal. Yeah, Ruth. If it was A, that's because God wanted. If it was the, that's because that's what God wanted. We're going to talk about that. We're going to get to that. No, it wouldn't. And we'll talk about that. that. That's very important. And that's one of the things you're going to have to think through in the course here. But that's very important. We're, we're going to get to that. Don't worry. Yeah, Ruth. Don't worry, <laughs> I uh, keep coming back to this whole idea of 
our desire, particularly in our culture, to understand every little nuance, almost like in a way that we can prove that this is what God did or did not do. And I think that denies the reality of history. Mm-hmm. There are things about God and how He gave us His Word and how Christ did what He did when He was here that we will never comprehend because God is beyond our comprehension. Mm-hmm. What we have is what He told us about Himself. Right. So there are going to be some things about the way He operates, the way the Scripture is given, whether it's word for word or conceptually or they Whatever it is, there's going to be a, an element that we never will fully comprehend, and that is part of the mystery of God. Right. And I think we, we, we tend to ignore that mysterious fact a great deal, especially within the evangelical church, branch of the church. And it, it really trips us up. Yeah. Because we, we find ourselves unable to accept the reality that we never ever quite understand how inspiration of the scriptures. Yeah, we can a- understand it at the macro level, but at the minutiae, you know, all you know, at the minutiae level, we may not fully comprehend it. You know, what made Paul write Timothy? He was burdened about his friend. Where did that burden come from? Well, it came from Paul's heart, but wasn't God behind that as well? Yes. Didn't God give Paul a burden for his friend? Yeah. You know, and God so moved the circumstances and the everything so that, again, what Paul wrote was not only from his heart, a personal letter to a friend, but it was also the Word of God. Both of them together. Okay? Both together. Now, when we... No. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and the reason we bring in the inerrancy component here, all right, which is important, is because if it is a product of God, by definition, God cannot lie or make a mistake. Therefore, by definition, what he says is inerrant. Did Christ say, did Christ say things that had errors when he was preaching? No. Or we've got real problems if we go down that route. No, he was inerrant. What he said was accurate. Now, let's talk about this. Have again through one slide in 45 minutes. Theological definition. All right. It is the Bible that is inspired, not the authors. What do we mean by that? We talk about how sometimes, you know, I'm inspired to paint a beautiful sunset or something like that. You know, we talk about that. That's not what we're talking about here. When we say that the Bible is inspired, we mean that it is the thing that is inspired, not the human author. Although God used the human author to write the scripture, the Bible is what is inspired, not the human author. What do we, why is that important? The reason that is important is because God just inspired Paul and then let Paul write down whatever he wanted to write down. That would not be biblical inspiration. That would just be Paul emotionally writing something down. We're going we're gonna to split that out in a minute. Hold that thought. We'll split it out in a minute. The idea here is also divine causality. God is the prime mover in the inspiration of the Bible. God is the one who moved the situations, moved the circumstances, moved whatever the events were to produce the scripture. God is the one who did that. The prophets who wrote the scripture were not automatons. What do we mean? It's not like God saying, take a letter. And they wrote down word for word what God said or letter for letter what God said. They were not automatons. They did not go into a trance and write this stuff down. All right? They were writing from their own perspective a letter or something, but it was so superintended in their own heart, their own mind, their own emotions, that what they wrote down was the product of also the Holy Spirit who was moving their hearts as they wrote. So the final product of divine authority working through the prophetic agency is what the written authority of the Bible is. What does that mean? God who is the primary cause, writing through agents that were inspired, produced an inerrant, authoritative work. It was inerrant and it was authoritative. Alright? And that's what this is talking about here when you split it out. Now when you look at some important distinctions, we talk about Revelation. 
Revelation is the content of truth. Alright? That's the content. Is it uh, out of order or something? Oh, some of them got copied on the back and some didn't. I'm sorry. Alright, does anybody have that? Alright. Should have 14 slides total. Okay, the back side didn't get done. Okay, sorry about that. I'm sorry, you'll have to take notes on this. I apologize. All right. That's what you got pens and pencils for. Uh, revelation is the content. Okay? The information. That's revelation. And that, again, the only way we can get that revelation is God has to do the revealing. Okay? Illumination is the process whereby God reveals the written word to the reader. That's what we talked about in the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, remember? What does the Holy Spirit do? When you read the Bible, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, He's not doing revelation. He's already done that. He's not inspiring it. That's already been done. But what is He doing? He's illuminating it to you. He's helping you understand what was written down. That's illumination. That happens to all of us when we read the Word of God. We are illuminated by the Holy Spirit so that we understand the revelation that God revealed through the inspired authors. God then makes real to us as we understand it. Okay? And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the Holy Spirit is required for illumination. You're not going to figure it out on your own. You're not going to figure it out on your own. And then the third concept here is the inspiration is the method. That's what we're talking about. The method whereby God revealed His truth. Alright? So, if you want to look at it from a... You weren't done. Right faster. <laughs> um, the next slide is a little bit easier. It's a little bit faster. If you're really nice to Teresa, she might reprint these for you so that you have them next week. Okay. The printer was acting up. So if you don't want to write this down, she'll, she'll fix them for next week, all right? All right, let's do that. Um, if important distinctions is revelation is the what, inspiration is the how, illumination is the why. That's sort of like a, that, that's my approach to this. Revelation is the what. Inspiration is how. How did God reveal it? And illumination is why did God reveal it? Well, he reveals it as he reveals his truth to you through illumination. You know, oh, okay, this is why God has revealed this. Revelation is what did God reveal? Yeah. How did he reveal it and why? Yeah. Okay. That's sort of a little shortcut to understand these distinctions. Because when we use them, we use revelation, inspiration, illumination, and sometimes they all get jumbled up in our minds. There are three distinct concepts here. Okay? And it's the illumination as to why the non-believer can't get anything out of it. Right. The non-believer has the revelation of God, the inspired word of God, but they can't figure it out because they don't have the illumination. All right? Yeah. Now let's talk about, let's go back to what Dave was talking about a little bit earlier here, and also Sammy. Autographs and copies. Autograph is a fancy word which means original. Alright? That's what it means. So when you're reading the Bible commentary, it talks about autograph. That's the original. So the, the autograph of Timothy is what Paul finished writing in the prison in Rome on that piece of parchment that he wrote. That was the original autograph. That was the original letter. Okay? Do we have any of those around today? No. Not the original autographs. We don't have the actual pen book from Isaiah. What do we have? Not even in museums. Not even in museums. We have a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, probably. Now, we're going to talk about the whole copying process before you freak. Understand that the copying process was so meticulous here. We're going to, we're going to talk about... We're going to go through how the, how the um, Israelites, the Jews, copied their scripture. And you see how meticulously they copied it. You're not going to worry about whether you've got the original or not. They counted the letters. And if the letters were wrong, they destroyed the copy, the number of letters. They counted middle letters. They, counted all, they had all kinds of ways to, to produce these copies that created an extremely high, extremely high level of accuracy. Can you tell us what the 
Yeah. Yeah, we'll get, we're going to get to those later. I have pictures of some of them later on. It'll be, it'll be fine. Are those original? No. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written somewhere around 200 B.C. And the um, Old Testament scriptures were finished about when? Anybody have an idea when the Old Testament canon closed? 440. Old Testament was about 440 B.C. Okay. The New Testament was 96, somewhere around in there. Old Testament about 440. So these copies are 200 some odd years plus from the original. In the case of Isaiah, Isaiah wrote somewhere around the 700, 720, somewhere around in there. So you're talking about a 500 year difference between the originals and the earliest Isaiah scroll that we have. But when you look at the Dead Sea Scroll and then you compare it to before the Dead Sea Scrolls were written, the earliest we had was 900 A.D. All right. And they did a comparison. The liberals were, they were just happy as clams when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found because now they could prove how corrupt the text is. And to their horror and shock and dismay, they found that they were virtually identical. 1,100 years separating the two scrolls, virtually identical. And where there was a difference, it was usually in a spelling of a common, like a, a noun. Or in some cases, they found a grammar change. You know how grammar changes over time? They found some grammatical changes. But other than that, the two scrolls are virtually identical. So don't go out here freaking saying, I don't have the original. I don't know if it's right. Folks, what you have is 99.9996% pure. It's better than ivory soap. All right. And by the way, what differences there are, we're going to talk about this later on, what differences there are does not in any way impact any belief doctrine of the church. Nothing is impacted. We have what God wants us to have. God is revealed. But when we talk about inspiration, we're saying that the inspiration and the inerrancy apply to original autographs, not the copies of copies of copies. And why do we know it doesn't reply to copies of copies of copies? Because we have differences. Right? There are differences. Minor, in many cases, minor, 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 but there are differences. And we're going to talk about, one of the fascinating things that we're going to talk about is what some of the differences are. When you start looking at these differences, you say, well, that's nothing. How many of you spelled receive wrong in your life? I do it all the time. If I didn't have a spell checker, I'd be doomed on that word. All right? But we know what it means. When you read something and it's misspelled, you know what it means. Okay, misspell the word. Well, a lot of changes or a lot of differences are that, misspellings, things like that. We're going to look at those. But what we have here is that the, the original autographs have original inspiration. What we have now is derived inspiration. So is what we have the inspired word of God? Yes, in the sense that it was copied from an inspired original. But do it, what you have in your translation, did God re-inspire the translators to write this? No. Unless you're KJ the only person, in which case all logic goes out the window and you don't care. All right? And we're going to talk about that later on too. Where they have the, they believe that God re-inspired the translators of the King James so that what they produced was a re-inspired edition of the Word of God. Alright? We'll talk about that. However, when we talk about the veracity, and we're going to do this in some detail, I'm just whetting your appetite here to tell you it's coming. You don't want to miss it. But when you look at the differences and the, the, the variations and all the manuscripts that we have, you boil them down to about 160. Out of, out of the entire Bible, there's about 160 differences that what we call are non-trivial. Non-trivial. What we mean by non-trivial is a misspelling, a, a word order, or a, 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 you know, a letter that was mistaken for another letter. There's some examples where, you know, there are certain letters in the Greek text that look almost alike. If you have a little smudge on the page, you can get the wrong letter. All right. When you move all those, there's about 160 of them that rise any, even above the level of triviality. And of those 160 differences, none of them have anything to do with doctrine. So is Jesus still the Son of God? Yeah. Did he die for your sins? Yeah. Is there still a hell? Yeah. There's no doctrine. There's no single doctrine. And we mean by that, we mean primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary, quintrinary, whatever. There is no doctrine that is affected by any of these variations. There, and most of them are easily explained. All right? And we'll talk about some of them so you understand what we're talking about. Yeah? But translations affect doctrine. Translations do if, if they are 
they are, um, um, what do I want to call it, intentionally altered, like the New World Translation, which is the um, Jehovah Witnesses Bible. They have intentionally altered the interpretation. And, and we're going to talk about translations, too. That's one of the fun things about this course. We'll talk about in, translations and how to pick a good one. All right? But, I, but one thing I can tell you this, other than, you know, like a New World Translation or something like that, you can pick up most... Oh, also, the, the TNIV, the gender-neutral thing. That should be burned. If you have one of those, burn it in your fireplace. Um, other than that, um, most any Bible you pick up is, is good. Some may be a little bit better than others because they're, they're translated a little bit differently. But you got the Word of God. You, you don't have to worry about you're missing something. All right, we have it. God, and here's the other thing. If God went to all the trouble to inspire the original, he would also go to the trouble to make sure that it's preserved. We're talking about preservation here as well. We're, going to talk, we're hitting a lot of threads here that we're going to complete later on. Don't worry about it. Okay, we'll get to all of those questions. All right, we're not going to miss anything. But when somebody comes along and says, well, you've got to understand that the Bible has been corrupted, that we don't have the original, there's no way we can know it. That's what the cults like to do. That's what Peter Jennings does on TV and the History Channel and the Discovery Channel and all that other junk. You don't need to listen to that because they're ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about. All right, we have manuscripts of the New Testament going back to the second century. And beyond that, we have quotes from the early church fathers. And you know what? There's no indication that anything was corrupted. In fact, it's virtually identical all the way through. There's no, there's no indication. And in the Old Testament, there is no indication of corruption. There is no evidence. There is zero evidence that the Scripture has been altered. There is none. And they, only, they can only get away with that because most people are too ignorant to look and see what actually is going on. If you take, if you take anybody who takes a little bit of effort and understands textual criticism and transmission and the, and the text that we have and the Greek text we have will say, you know, these guys are full of beans. They don't know what they're talking about. But they can get away with it because most people are too ignorant to look at it. All right? Don't worry about your Bible being authoritative. It is. The Word of God that you have in your hands right now has a stamp of God's approval on it. And what's so sad, a lot of people don't understand that because X dude or woman on one of those history or discoveries has the title of theologian, they don't understand that that does not equate to believer, or does not equate to, you know, Bible-believing Christian. Yeah. You know, theologian means, oh, I better listen. No, theologian means I've studied a lot of religion class. It doesn't mean you know anything. That's right. All right, so don't, don't let those titles fool you. You know, don't get, wow, you know, this is doctor, professor, what nibble. Don't worry about it. I mean, that doesn't mean anything. The Bible is the Word of God. We're going to look, when you get done, when we get done with bibliology, you're going to go out of here even more convinced that what you have is God's Word. And you're going to be able to deal with these nutcases that come along and try to tell you that somehow this has been so irrevocably corrupted that there's no way you can understand it and, that, and there's no way that we can even be assured that it is what God said. You're not going to have to worry about that. We'll settle those answers for you in this class. That's right, and they have the noetic effect of sin, which means they can't think right, especially when it comes to divine truth. All right, so let's look at theories of inspiration. We hit on this a little bit. Theories of inspiration, and there's lots of ways to uh, to categorize these things. I picked this way here, um, depending on what book you pick up or what theology you pick up, it'll be different different ways. But there's what we call orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is the historic Christianity. And there's two basically major camps in here, camp or views. One is what we call the verbal or mechanical dictation, which means God literally told Paul to write a letter. There are some that really believe this. Um, some Bible-believing Christians believe this. I don't know if anybody heard of John R. Rice. That's, that was his view of inspiration. That God actually in the prison, Paul heard a voice from heaven saying, take a letter, and he wrote it down word for word what God said. All right. The other thing here is what we call the inspired concepts kind of thing. Not the, and the, the idea of the inspired concepts, notice what it says here. They were born along by the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, it means that what, did they, what they wrote was in their own language, 
their own style, their own vocabulary, but the very words that they were produced was the words that God wanted them to write. In both cases here, the end product is a verbal, inerrant text. Verbal words, inerrant, no mistakes. All right? Whether you want to say God mechanically dictated the letter or whether God just inspired and moved them along, which I think is a better understanding of what it says in Second Peter there, both of these produce a verbally inerrant text. So when Paul finished writing 1 Timothy, when Moses finished writing Genesis, every word was exactly the word that God wanted written down. All right? And by definition, because that was the word that God wanted written down, by definition, it is inerrant because God cannot make a mistake. God does not make any errors. So God did not accidentally omit something. God did not make a historical error. God did not make a scientific error. Nothing like that. It's all accurate. Specifically, spiritually, when it comes to spiritual things. Okay, so this is the orthodox view. And the people who believe in orthodoxy say the Bible is the Word of God. I think we talked about this, maybe we didn't, or I, I, I don't forget if we did or not. You sort of lose track of that thing. But Orthodox Christianity says the Bible is the Word of God. It does not become the Word of God. It does not contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. All right? It is, in and of itself, the Word of God. Okay? However, the modernist says the Bible contains the Word of God. There are people who believe this. Well, somewhere in here, there, there are some things that God wanted you to know. But you've got to sort of sort out what God wanted you to know from the other stuff. All right? That's the Bible contains the Word of God. That's what a lot of people believe today. Well, the Bible contains the Word of God, but the whole thing is not the Word of God. All right? Let me give you an ex uh, just a, a teaser on this. We're going to get it in one of the later modules of, the, of this. I believe in a literal seven-day or six-day creation. I take Genesis for what it said. All right? Now, if you don't take Genesis for what it says, you come up with theistic evolution, you come up with what they call the day-age theory or some other evolutionary approach to this, all right? And some would say, well, you've got to understand that, that what God was trying to communicate there was sort of a general concept. He wasn't really telling you exactly how it happened. Well, how do you know that? All right? If you believe the Bible is the Word of God, you're going to come to a different conclusion than if you believe the Bible just contains some ideas about what happened. Making any sense? There's a difference there. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. It doesn't contain the Word of God. And as neo-Orthodox boys in the next slide say, it doesn't become the Word of God when I read it. It is, in and of itself, apart from me, the Word of God. It doesn't need me to become the Word of God. But some say, well, what God did, inspiration refers to God illuminating the author who wrote down their ideas and insights. But it was really their ideas and insights but God sort of gave them this general concept, this general warm fuzzy that they just wrote down in their own words. All right? So this view of inspiration produces what? What inspiration is this? Is this verbal, plenary? Is it the God, words that God wanted? Nah, you know, God just sort of gave Paul a warm and fuzzy feeling for Timothy. Paul wrote some things down and somewhere in there we can dig out some truths about what God wants us to do, but, you know, the words and the that doesn't mean anything. It's, it's the concepts. It's, it's, the, it's the feelings that Paul had all right, that are important. It's the feelings that these guys had. So these kind of people will just sort of remove the need to really study the Bible because you want to get back to what is God really trying to communicate in this? You see where they're going with this thing? Sort of see where, where you're headed on this one? Paul had some ideas about God and he wrote them down in his own terms. So maybe Paul's right and maybe he's wrong. I don't know. That was just Paul's idea. And what makes Paul's ideas any better than Peter's? Or any better than mine? Right? I have ideas too about God. You, you remove the authority of Scripture here. Um, before backing up to the orthodoxy for a moment, um, the thing that would get some people that, okay, the Bible is the word of God, the orthodox view, well, okay, that must mean that 
God approves of, and then they start listing things like, I don't know, multiple wives or, you know. And it's not when it's saying the Bible is the word of God, it is God in this that example giving mm. historical information right. for us to receive, not to say that every, because good grief, everybody in the Bible was a sinner. Yeah. So, yeah. And that goes back to biblical interpretation, which we're going to get to. I always hate to say that we're going to get to that, because if we didn't, we'd be here till I don't know, whenever. We'd be here till next Sunday and still not get anywhere. Um, the whole point is, it goes back to biblical interpretation. The Bible is the Word of God, now how do I understand it? Okay, David had multiple wives. Does that mean I should have multiple wives too? No. no. Not necessarily. Not at all. In fact, what was God's original intent? One man, one woman for life. That was God's original intent. Alright, and, and we're going to get to some, some implications here in a minute of this. But modernism says the Bible contains the Word of God. Neo-Orthodoxy says the Bible becomes the Word of God. So, as you read the Scripture and God sort of dings you or... You get some warm fuzzy in you, that's God speaking to you. But the Bible itself is not the Word of God. The text itself is not the Word of God. It becomes the Word of God as you read it. Alright? This was, and remember, Dan talked about Rudolf Bultmann here, this guy. He says, uh, well, the Bible's written in mythological language, so we gotta get rid of all the myth. He's, he does this demythologizing the Bible. So you gotta get rid of all the miracles, you gotta get rid of all of that stuff, and get down to the core. And this is, also goes along with this whole concept of the quest for the historical Jesus. Go look that up on the web. No idea there is we gotta get rid of the miracles, we gotta get rid of all of this stuff that the church said about Jesus to find out who is the real Jesus. And the real Jesus in that thing is nothing more than what Peter Jennings did. You know, just some guy walking around and he's caught up in a bunch of things. And the next thing you know, he's nailed on a cross. But he's certainly not the God of the Creator. He's certainly not that. That's the Jesus Seminar guys. That's, that's the whole lot of them. Look, folks, the Bible does not become the Word of God. Now, it becomes the Word of God in what sense? In what sense does it become the Word of God to you? When the Holy Spirit illuminates it, right? But that's different. The, the Bible is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will illuminate it to you. That does not mean the Holy Spirit is making it the Word of God to you. Do you understand? There's a difference. Because what they're saying is the Bible is not the Word of God, but you get some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling when you interact with it, and that's God sort of making it come alive to you. That's nonsense. That's mumbo-jumbo and double talk. The personal encounter kind of thing. And, and the, you, know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people on TV and all the guys, you know, they'll, they'll buy into this, you know. Okay, if you read the Bible and it rings your bell, good for you. That's okay. I didn't ring mine, but if it's okay for you, it's okay for you. That's personal encounter. Listen, folks, the Bible is the Word of God, whether you think it is or not, or whether all the guys on the History Channel and all the, all the other people in the world say it is or isn't, it is the Word of God. It is. And you've got to figure out what it says. Um, I'm going the wrong way here. Okay, here it is. Let's, let's expand this, this view a little bit here and let's uh, understand some implications of it in our remaining few minutes. Number one, inspiration is verbal. It goes to the actual words of the text. Sure, they were born along by the Holy Spirit, but Peter and Paul and John and the rest of the authors of Scripture when they finished their autograph, which is the original, the very words were what God wanted. Plenary. All of the scripture is inspired, not pieces, parts of it. And it is authoritative. Why is it authoritative? Because it's from God. Because it's from God. It's an implication. If God says something, is it important to listen? Yeah. So by definition, what God says is something you need to be listening to. Okay. What are some implications of this? Well, implication number one, inspiration does not mean all parts of the Bible are equally important, but all are equally inspired. Are there some parts of the Bible that are more important to you than others? Depends where we're at in our lives, yes. Yeah. Can you go to heaven and never read First Chronicles? Yes. Yeah, you can. If that's possible, alright? You're not going to get quizzed on the way into the pearly gates about who begat who, alright? 
that does not mean that First Chronicles is not inspired, but it's not equally important. All right, but all of it is equally inspired. Inspiration does not guarantee the inspiration of modern versions. Right? We're not saying that the NIV is the verbally inspired Word of God. It's a translation. The King James is a translation. The ESV, which I use, is a translation. We're not talking about the inspiration of translations. We're talking about the inspirations of the original text. Inspiration does not allow for any false teaching, but it does record the lies of others. For example, it records Satan lying to Eve. Now, that's not God giving his stamp of approval on that, but it's saying, this is what happened. Right? The same thing with David. David had multiple wives. God is not saying that is acceptable. God is saying that's what happened. All right? So the Bible records the lies and the sins of others, although it does not promote them. It records them. Inspiration does not permit any historical, scientific, or prophetic error. Why? Because God wrote it. If you want to put that in there, that means God's leading us wrong. God is lying to us, or God doesn't know what he's writing. You've got real problems if you go down that path. Inspiration does not prohibit personal research. What do we mean by that? Where did Luke come up with his stuff for his book? Well, he says it. He says, I took, a, I took an exercise to write down an accurate account of all Jesus began to say and do. Where did he get Mary's Magnificat? Remember? Where did he, where did he, where did he figure that out? He probably asked her. Right? He probably talked to Mary. He did an interview. Luke says, I did some interviews. So he did personal research, but when he sat down to write Luke, what did the Holy Spirit do with all of the research that, Paul, that Luke did? He moved, borne him along so that he wrote down what scripture, the scripture that God wanted him to write down. It also does not deny the use of extra-biblical sources. For example, Paul quotes some pagan Greek authors. That's not God saying those pagan Greek authors are inspired, right? All, I, all this is God used as a quote for Paul to illustrate a point in his message, all right? The other thing, it does not overwhelm the personality of the author. We talked about this. Paul is Paul, Luke is Luke, John is John. You can tell the difference between these authors because of their vocabulary, their writing style, you can tell the difference, okay? So it doesn't overwhelm their personality, it does not exclude the usage of, that should be of, pictorial symbolic language. We're talking this about inspiration, what Sammy said. The Bible says the sun rose. We understand what that means, right? Sunrise, sunset. The Bible is written from a human perspective. We, we expect that. We use that all the time in our, our daily lives. So you, under, you, you interpret the Bible using normal figures of speech, like we would use. All right? It does not mean uniformity in all detail. This is what brought by this gentleman here. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm very bad with names. Merle. Merle. I'll forget it five minutes later, so I'm, I apologize. Merle. It, it, it's what he says. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John writing from a different perspective, but when you put them all together, you get the real picture of what was going on. Matt, John is not, not contradicting Luke. For example, the inscription above the cross. You've got four different inscriptions written by the four different gospel authors. You say, oh, there's a contradiction. No. Put all four of them together, you get the whole inscription. All right? Inspiration assures us that God has accurately transmitted all that he wishes us to know. This is very important. God gave us everything we need to know. God did not leave something out. God did not forget something that had to be discovered by some guy nowadays, like Freud or some psychologist. We didn't have to work. God did not forget anything. He gave us everything we know, need to know. It's all there. It also includes the concept of inerrancy. We talked about this. Since God wrote it, it's by definition accurate, inerrant, and authoritative. It's binding on all humans. And if you don't have this, like some people want to say, how do you know which is inerrant and what isn't? How do you sort that out? Well, you go to the Jesus Seminar, they'll tell you. They'll vote with beads and marbles and tell you what God really said and what he didn't say. And when you subject it to that kind of thing, you get one verse out of John that was really authoritative. The rest of it is all a concoction of the early church. That's the kind of nonsense you wind up with if you go down that route. All of it is inspired. It's without error. 
There's no mistakes. Now we're going to expand a lot of these in subsequent sessions of the, of the class. We're going to look at translations. We're going to look at in there, uh, the transmission of the text and how the Jews copied it and things like that. And what you're going to find is that the Bible that you pick up and hold in your hand is the Word of God. It's God's Word to you. You don't have to worry about it. So, any comments or questions here? We're out of time. Okay. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day, for allowing us to be here. And Father, I thank you that you've given us a God-breathed Bible. I'm thankful that we can pick it up and read it and be assured that what it says to us is what you want us to know. We don't need to be confused, Father, by all the voices out there that say that it was corrupted or that we don't know what it is or that it really isn't the Word of God. It just becomes it. We know that it is. And I pray that you would speak to us through its pages and illuminate us so that we may know it and obey it. And thank you for this great opportunity to study it. In Christ's name, amen.